I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured on Celluloid, a podcast that is once again about movies. We got out of our system. We did our one Don movie um, episode of the year. Um, we signed off the last episode saying we were going to talk about Spider-Man. We are going to talk about Spider-Man, just not today. Part of the reason for that is we have lined up a guest who I think has more expertise, more knowledge, more wisdom, more enthusiasm, probably too, about Spider-Man, about the MCU, and we'll make a nice kind of balance to all of that and maybe push us into some different places and talking about them. And That'll be a really fun conversation. That is going to be our next episode. So if you're tuning in for that now, in spite of the title saying that is not what this episode is, there's your explanation. It will be the next one. So I hope you listen to this one, and I hope you also come back next time. But we're going to talk about something different. We're going to talk about Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. And we're also going to talk about the first uh, adaptation of the film, Edmund Golding's version, which was released in 1947. Before we get into all that, though, very important. Andrew, how are you? I'm well. I think this is the second uh, or second time in the last few weeks where we're talking about not what we said we were going to be talking yeah, about because I, could, because, because I couldn't be bothered <laughs> and you know not, that's not what happened here anyway uh i'm well i'm glad <laughs> to be back with you talking about movies uh and because you know we left last week on a bit of a sour note when i introduced as that's, my fifth best thing of the year not... a cricket video <sighs> game uh so i'm really happy to be back talking about you know what this podcast was created for and that's you and I talking about movies and interrogating my internal psyche. Yeah, and this movie will definitely get to the heart of in, interrogating the internal psyche. I mean, let's first of all, I mean, I want we'll do some background on this movie. We'll do, I guess, the conversation that has come out around this movie in the time since. I would be pretty confident in saying this is probably not in theaters anywhere in the US at this point. And there were some talks about it was going to have a kind of very fast turnaround rush to streaming um, and probably to PVOD before that. Part of the reason for that is this is an absolute bomb in box office terms. Um, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's first film after Shape of Water, after all the Oscar success and attention that came with that. Pretty buzzy title kind of for quite some time. Big Big cast, Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, David Strait Hearn, like, big names. Familiar faces for people, maybe casual movie guys are like, oh, Bradley Cooper movie, let's go and see that. And then also a really deep and interesting kind of supporting cast of really good character actors in the mix too. So I, I think as a cast, it kind of has everything. It's really, really complete. And people did not come out to see Nightmare Alley. And, I mean, there's a, there's a few kind of interesting elements to this. The one thing that, for anyone listening in the US, you may be able to see is a black and white version, which I think has just been released into theaters. Um, Vision and Darkness and Light, I think is what Del Toro has subtitled that one. It's something he's talked about quite a bit that he had that version, he wanted to also do something with that. Maybe that will help, but as of this recording, and as of the Wikipedia figures I'm looking at, 
This film has grossed $14.5 million worldwide against a $60 million budget. That's not good. And yet, Andrew Snyder, you, two, three weeks ago now, maybe? Yeah, getting close to a month, but around that time frame. You ventured out to a theater, and you're one of the only people in, in America to go and see Nightmare Alley. Well, Adam, if we're going to be exact about it, when we're looking at that box office figure, I contributed two tickets to that because I originally tried to see it a week earlier. Uh, and this particular local independent cinema, which I love, the Carolina Theater, uh, n- through no fault of theirs, it's my own for not having been in a while and not remembering that they don't really do full on uh, trailers. Uh, I walked in about five minutes late, was like, can't do that. It'll, I'll, like some people, like people that go to the bathroom during movies or show up late and still watch the movie, uh, make me want to pull my hair out because I can never do that. I need to see this fully, fully formed film. But anyway, so I left I that. Actually, went think song. in this film, you, I mean, you, you only find this out with hindsight, but you, I think you could have got away being five minutes late because there's some kind of flashback structuring that would have given you what you missed later in the film. I don't know that ever kind of occurred to you, or did you just completely forget about that until now? But um it occurred to me to a degree but also i would have wanted to start with the flashback too so it still would have driven me crazy it, <laughs> if we were talking about the 1947 version i wouldn't have missed anything basically um but anyway i walked out of that went to see swan song so i contributed to the box office twice saw it a week <laughs> later and uh you know only me could that happen to i i'd forgotten that story so you are artificially juicing the the lackluster box office for Nightmare Alley. I mean, part of the story here is this is a film and Del Toro has, in recent years, kind of worked very closely with formerly Fox Searchlight, now Searchlight. Um, They distributed The Shape of Water when he won his Oscar most recently. And this is a film that was in development there, I guess, at the time that Disney bought Fox. It was one of those... I guess significant like medium budget adult dramas that not many of them get made anymore that Disney inherited in that deal. The other being The Last Jewel, which a very similar conversation arose around when that film came out. And, you know, Ridley Scott ended up cursing out like millennials. Part of the story here, though, is Disney kind of just dumped these movies, which is wild and pretty disconcerting um even in the case of nightmare alley most of all i mean maybe there was some sense of oh you know it's counter programming but they put it up against spider-man and maybe it's you know it's a nice touch from us that we're letting we're letting nightmare alley get its shine first because in reality everyone went to see spider-man and nightmare alley was just kind of left there on the shelf but even beyond that, I mean, it wasn't necessarily the best time slot. It wasn't the, the best spot in the schedule to find when you had Licorice Pizza coming out too. And again, the kind of the audience that you might have for a filmmaker like Del Toro or for just, I guess, the kind of moviegoer who wasn't interested in seeing Spider-Man. I, Disney is not doing a whole lot to target these people or to really make any kind of logical effort for these films to make money, which on the most basic level, I 
I get that going forward. I don't know what Searchlight will be. I, I don't know if Searchlight will exist like it's existed for the past kind of 15, 20 years. I don't know if Disney will have any interest in films like this. That's kind of something you, you could pretty safely assume. But with the way Disney operates, I really would have thought, oh, well, we've inherited these films. They're here now. Let's make sure we make the absolute most amount of money we can out of them. And I mean, a slightly more successful film, like in a relative sense, it, it did better. It got closer to making its money than either of those two. And it probably just about broke even after global box office. The French Dispatch is another example in this stone that a searchlight movie that is now technically coming out under Disney. And it's the case of, well, yeah, what do we do with this? Like, it's maybe helped a bit more by the inbuilt Wes Anderson, but some of that you would think there's there's an element of knowing what you'll get with Del Toro and there'll be an audience for that too. So I will say, I really like this film. I really, really like this film. I think it's really good. One of the better movies I saw this year, certainly one of the very best studio films. It does feel like a movie with, like A-list actors that there was $60 million put into and a great director was allowed to go and make this movie. And this really is a point where like, I know we don't see much like this anymore anyway, but I do not think this movie will exist again outside of being like a comic book tie-in. Like just the, the version that someone will get Joker, but like coming from a carnival and then being in a like noir Gotham City. Maybe I shouldn't, I should edit that out of the pod because that sounds like that sounds like a hot idea I've just come up with there that could get made. Yeah, I think you should look into that. Um, <laughs> and that's really sad that these types of films might not get made anymore because I mean, yeah, like you, now we'll get into this later. I really enjoyed it as well. Then saw some, I read some reviews after and I was like, am I an idiot? Was, did this suck? And I was just an idiot. But more on that later. The, the first thing I remember thinking, I, I can't remember which film you were talking about. I think it might have been Zola. Um, and the thing you told me about it, like your one takeaway was this film has style. And I feel the same way about Nightmare Alley. I mean, it's it's kind it's glossy and polished while still uh being dark and gritty enough to tell the story it's telling but it like you said it does look like a big studio film and we're getting a lot of big and kind of showy performances from big well-known actors and it's it's kind of overall and over dramatic in some areas and, and absolutely ridiculous but it really works all the way through and i i mean the the fact that if like two or three of these types of movies came out every year, I think you and I would happily go see them. And, and the fact that nobody cared to see it and that it was, the distribution was handled so poorly is, is a disservice to it as a film and the film industry as a whole. And it is a, a little disconcerting to, to it, it being the maybe cutoff point of that, of that sort of thing. I mean, disclaimer, which needs to be added, but, it's like an asterisk that applies for all the movies that have come out in the last two years in theaters, which is, yeah, this is a pandemic release. And also this was kind of poorly timed in that it was really when Omicron was starting to kind of 
rage up and people are hearing about it and there may well have been if i had been in the us this would apply to me uh, th- this movie has just been released here now and things have mm, slightly eased up again um but i i was going back to go on cinema pretty regularly true to mid-december and with the exception of one trip to see um, licorice pizza i was I, I left it for like six weeks seven weeks until today um when i was back by against that licorice pizza about other stuff but maybe that plays into it now the other possibility is always that the kind of people who were going to go and see this in the cinema will never go to the cinema to see this again like i i don't know i i don't have a strong enough feeling for that because i'm a movie guy and i'm a go and see movies in the cinema guy and the people i know who really like that i know true them being somewhat like me like our friends who are just casual movie goers and honestly I, I couldn't begin to tell you what makes them go to see a movie in a theater. Like they just do. Sometimes it will just be a Sunday and it will be a thing to do. And it really has nothing to do with the movie, uh, which is very, very much detached from, well, it is, I guess it is and it isn't. Um, I, I do just go for an experience. Sometimes I'm open to watching all sorts of stuff because of that. But if you get my point, I don't know if there's like a, semi-regular audience like you might have been a better if you didn't have like me browbeating you from week to week to watch movies maybe you're a representative of that someone who who likes movies who say if we go back to pre-covid you would go to cinemas pretty regularly but not like super regularly it wasn't like a religious once a week once every two weeks kind of thing like i don't know Uh, maybe maybe you have a feeling or maybe you know someone that you could think of where you're like, maybe they would have gone to see a movie like this before, but now they're like, oh, I'm sure there's something on Netflix, or I'll wait for this. Like, again, it's a searchlight movie. So I know in this part of the world, this will end up on Disney Plus. In the US, it will end up on Hulu. Like, maybe people are just like, yeah, I guess I can wait. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a perfect example of, of that kind of movie because I, I'm not sure that among anyone other than film heads guillermo guillermo <laughs> del toro is um like event viewing for just the general public um and so like to, to your point about me is the type of film goer i was probably before we started doing this was more like all right i need to see the new tarantino movie or something like that I and think i think you were I don't, a li- I don't want to tell you what you were but were you not a little bit like further like tarantino is as surface level as it gets you are you may have looked forward to tarantino more than anything but i i don't think that's representative of the type of movies that you were watching or i think that's what i could have evolved to had had this podcast not exist to where you know as we get older we run out of more time i go to every sporting event on the planet whereas now i might be more excited about seeing come on come on and west side story on the big sure. screen than i am Sp- <laughs> spider-man like it, it could have gotten to the point where it's like, oh, I'll just wait for that on streaming. And I think Nightmare Alley is a perfect example of where if those movies are going to get made, they're going to be made for much lower budget. And that's where they're going to end up. Like if this movie had gone directly to Plus or HBO Max, like you were saying, or if it were a Netflix movie, for example, don't you think it probably would have been seen by a lot more people and might have been a little buzzier 
and that's kind of sad but yeah but the, i mean we know I'm, I'm not bringing up the movie that is representative of that i'm not going down that road again we we know with a recent movie that came out it was actually released like right at the same time as this and everyone stayed at home and went oh look leonardo dicaprio and jennifer lawrence you know two i'm just throwing two names out there there may or may not be a movie they were in that i'm talking about but people watch that instead like when i say this is going to be made again there's a chance netflix could give 60 million dollars for something like this to be made i don't like it will play well at home but del toro's movies for particularly what he does with color and what he does with light and then just like the production design of this movie is incredible the buildings look particularly the back half of the movie looks absolutely gorgeous like the the attention to detail there and just like that's what a filmmaker like that does and you i i take your point that he he isn't tarantino or he's not scorsese or paul thomas anderson there is a breakout awareness i think with more than hardcore film fans about guillermo del toro now the way i would explain that is i think more people will have heard of him than will necessarily have seen any of his movies but i i do think it's a name that like will be there somewhere like for you pre-shape of water before he wins an oscar and then i guess that would in the current context even now like people will have heard his name then at some point whether they care or they don't you probably you know oh guillermo del toro is a, is a movie director yeah, I mean, you, you don't necessarily know his movies. You're not necessarily going for that. But he, he has been a name director going back to early 2000s when he was really buzzy. And then he moved across into, into Hollywood films. Kind of mixed track records, some good stuff, some bad stuff. I think generally always interesting stuff. Then he's also had like some pretty significant production work where his executive produced quite a few horror movies, I feel like. Um, trying to pull that up now. And also to cut down my own point, I just blew my own mind to see that Shape of Water made $195 million it's, against it's the $20 entirely, million budget. It's an entirely different planet for movies in such a short period of time. Like talking the, the the example that really comes to mind for that, talking about Del Toro, um, one of his closest friends, um, his fellow um, Mexican filmmaker, Alejandro Iñárritu, The Revenant. The Revenant made like six hundred million dollars, and that movie is like, I don't know if that would make six million dollars if that was released now, even with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. Like, it's like a two and a half hour root canal. It's I have not watched it since I saw it the first time. Like, yeah, I respect it kind of like it's yeah, it was well made for sure. Um not my vibe generally, but it, it's it's very, very kind of we try not to. I don't think we do a lot of this because this feels to be everything you read and everything you listen to about movies generally. This is a movie, though, where it's like in your face because the movie's good and it's got really famous people. 
it's got a director just coming off like Oscar wins and nobody went to see it. That is it's a little alarming. And I mean, the flip side of this is his next project is a stop motion Pinocchio film that a teaser came out like a couple of days ago, um, which he's making for Netflix. It will be on Netflix later in the year. And I would bet like right around Christmas, his uh, Mussolini era set Pinocchio will be pretty buzzy. Like people will be talking about it. People who would not be like, oh, let's go to the theater to see Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, but Italy in the Mussolini era. You know, like that is that to your point that that's clear as day. People will watch that that will not go to a theater to watch it. The thing is, is I've been asking for a stop motion Pinocchio movie set in Mussolini's Italy since the 90s, and someone finally listened to me. So it's I'm a good gl- idea. I'm glad, I'm glad it's getting made. It's a good idea. I, I had literally, I only like less than an hour ago did I hear Del Toro reveal on Mark Maron's podcast that it was in fact set in that time in Italy. And I was like, oh, okay, this is this is interesting. And Del Toro's been trying to make um, it's kind of I was going to call it white whale. Fitting to bring whales into Pinocchio. But it's it's something he's been trying to make for a long, long time, along with he's had visions of Frankenstein and Beauty and the Beast. These kind of stories he's drawn to, obviously the monster um, and the grotesque are always factors in his work. Maybe pushed a little bit more to the background in this case, but it's still there. So moving out of that and on to what really made me more and more curious. This is, this is one of kind of the last really big films that I felt like I needed to see from 2021 when it comes to kind of locking things in, having a sense of, okay, I've done my homework. I can now decide what I feel are the best films of the year. So I'd had an eye on it. I was like, okay, it's one of the, the few with like a, a really late release here. No kind of availability, no screenings, not available digitally in the US or anywhere else yet. Although that'll probably change soon enough. I had an idea of the critical consensus being like mixed on the extremes. And I also had my good friend and co-host Andrew Snyder who had gone see the movie and like I think I'd probably separately told me that I really liked that and then it might be terrible and like I I just I, I didn't have a feel for what you were where you were at on this film and is that in is that in hindsight just you know you saw how divided the 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 critical consensus was in the movie and you were like i don't know where i stand you lost your sense of self in this battle or what what's going on there what about the movie do you think kind of because i i also i mean you mentioned earlier that some parts of this like the acting is kind of overacted over the top i don't really feel that like in in line with what the story is which is like the first half of it is like at a carnival and we've got like a geek and we've got all of this. There's a couple of people who are putting in a little bit of extra panache. Willem Dafoe early in the movie definitely strikes me as one and that was great. I love that. But 
in fitting with the character. I don't, I don't, I didn't find anything beyond that. So I have tried to avoid really digging into this one before I saw it. And then since knowing we podcast, but I want to get your, your thoughts now on what you saw and what you've kind of wrestled with over how you felt with this movie since seeing it. Yeah, it was just, it was the self doubt. And I, and in the letterboxed era of, of film watching has warped my mind to a certain extent, even though I only have two followers. Um, but you know, in theory, anyone is it, is it just see, it's me and Jordan. Yeah, just just you and my Come brother. Anyone listen? Go it, go give Andrew it, a follow. <laughs> in in theory, anyone could go and see my takes and think I was an idiot. And so I came out of that wanting to give it a four. And then I, I couched that because I was like, am I an idiot? And I think I can't. It's been a while since I read the criticism and the things that stood out. I think I read an Adam Naiman piece. It might not have been him. might have been someone else who kind of tore into some of the things I didn't like about it. Um, but, I, I mean, all the things that you t- talked about that I mentioned as possible flaws really worked for me in the moment. Like, like you said, you're entering a carnival with geeks and uh electrified women and um mentalists and that sort of thing so this is like a heightened sense of reality we're going on a kind of fantasy journey into the movies and it i almost enjoy this in a way where i would kind of enjoy a superhero movie just in a much different way and then this isn't necessarily reflective of the world i'm in it's building a world for us and taking us down a path and I, i mean in the moment and now in reflection and especially after watching the original nightmare alley i think everything was pitch perfect in terms of tone to and in terms of the performances to take us on the journey that the lead character has to go down and so i think it really was just uh i think these people that are smarter than me don't like this movie so i therefore i must be wrong and you know that doesn't always have to be the case i can just you know stick to my my guns every now and then and not have uh consensus uh make me feel bad about myself it's a big learning moment this is like a a seismic moment in the i mean i may regret this down the line when you're just like shooting from the hip like given one star to classics you know five stars to terrible movies you know this runs in the family you know (laughs) yeah i i don't think i'll go that far but Uh, but you watch a movie, Andrew. Come out of the movie and be like, "What did I think of it? Did I like it? How much did I like it?" And then you can engage with the other stuff, particularly you, because I think you you definitely go into these movies like cleaner, purer than I do. Uh, it's very, very rare that I go see something that I I don't have a clear idea of what it's about, or maybe some of the details of production history maybe some of the critical reception not even maybe most of the time yeah i mean i'm into movies i follow along with movies so like if, if something screens i can i mightn't see it for four or five months but like french dispatch is a good example like you Wes anderson comes out i'm not spending four or five months being like oh i'm avoiding any kind of review altogether like most of those things aren't spoilers so you're, you're usually pretty safe on that same i I love the idea, and you have a lot of people like, yeah, I don't watch trailers. I don't like to watch trailers. Like, that's cool. That's just like not 
feasible if if you kind of like movies the way that I do, where it's like, yeah, I want to know who's making what and when it's coming out, and I'm going to see things very regularly. Yeah, traders played before them. So I came in this sort of sense of I hadn't read, I hadn't dug in and read the criticism. I and I actually haven't mostly since. I just knew the extremes of it. I had seen critics that I admire basically give it raves and give it pants. And I'd already, by the time it got to me, it seemed like it started to go through a second cycle where people who kind of liked it the first time were like, that movie's really sticking with me. And, you know, I think it's really, it's so much better than anyone kind of is giving it credit for. I think for me, it's, it has some of the issues that Del Toro's films particularly recently suffer from, which is, I'm glad you brought up, I think it was Zola, that that was my description for it. It's got style. This movie does have style in a completely different way to that movie, like the complete opposite. The style is in the design, which is a very Del Toro thing. He started out as like, storyboard artists like that is that is central to how he views movies it's in a very visual sense but it's not necessarily the camera first and foremost his movies are designed and i mean it as a compliment they won't sound like it but to like within an inch of their lives because he's he's there and he's thinking about every single detail um he has his background in like makeup all of this like there's maybe not a person on the planet who knows more about monster movies, for example, than Guillermo del Toro. And his view of cinema is filtered first and foremost through that. Um, he's incredibly knowledgeable. He's encyclopedic and he would be able to talk about basically the whole, the whole breadth of cinema. But what you can see when you, when you go see his movies is everything looks absolutely astonishingly beautiful, more than you'll ever see really with any other director very few and then sometimes i get the feeling of i just wish his direction was a little bit more dynamic i wish there was just a little bit more style there in a kind of a verve um just some movement something that's really dynamic there's something very classical Hollywood to how he makes his movies, how he shoots his movies. In a sense, this one, like it is an award, that, that does make some sense. But the style is there, but it is there very much in costume, in set design, in lighting. And that takes a different kind of appreciation. And I, I can think of critics I, I, I do think Adam Naiman, I haven't read it, but I do think he wrote about this and didn't like it. That would not shock me entirely. Like, I, I think there is something there. Shape of Water, very disjointed thoughts here, but Shape, Shape of Water, what was your feeling on that? Shape of Water is a movie that I know when I saw in the theater and whatever, maybe three, four months before, like it eventually wins an Oscar. And it gets framed in a different way. I very much enjoyed it. I thought it was a pretty good movie. 
and it's kind of become something that gets kicked around as a like like what's this say if the oscars are saying this is this is the movie that's the best movie of the year where I was kind of like, you know what? Great performances in that movie. Again, like amazing, amazing production design. Really well made, well written. Like, yeah, it's not it's not an all-time movie that people are going to remember, but there have been and will be worse Oscar winners and contenders in The Shape of Water is, is my personal read on it. Did you respond to that film at the time? Can you remember? Or how do yeah, you think of it and, now even? Yeah, I... I echo your sentiments exactly and i i think it if we i think we were doing this podcast at the time and i think previous or, iteration of yeah course. yeah volume one uh i think it would have made like my top 10 of the year i liked it a lot of the time and um it it hasn't really been one i've ever cared to revisit or really thought about since so i think it's something that the public perception of it did get shaped by it winning an Oscar, probably I can't remember exactly what the category was at the time, but again, up against better films. But it's it, like a, it swept the board, like as in Del Toro got Best Picture and Best Director. Yeah, and I, I think um, it's a really solid film, but it's it's almost leg its legacy has almost been hurt by. But looking now at the category, it's like what really should have won. Oh, oh shit never mind phantom threads in that so yeah it, it was it, it's legacy is hard by winning an oscar because it was up against a, a clear front runner that's uh it's it's not even that it's it's the year and it, it is actually that year like the best picture nominees that year call me by your name a movie i love i have a lot of time for um darkest hour not good not good at all at <laughs> uh, dunkirk an, an absolute masterpiece, a movie that really, if the Academy were ever going to recognize Nolan, although maybe his Oppenheimer movie could be it, Dunkirk was was very, very good and about as kind of, I don't know, wider audience friendly, kind of wash off some of the disdain of Batman movies that some kind of Academy folks might have held against them. Get out obviously is kind of a contemporary classic lady bird phantom tread and uh, then you've got the post which is a movie i like enjoyed very much mostly because of subject matter but mid to lesser spielberg without doubt and tree billboard tree billboards outside ebbing missouri which is just pure evil a movie i despise the original never Don't mind. look up yeah it is as i said um let's hope Let's hope the new version doesn't get quite as far as that one got. Um, and I don't have to spend that much time thinking about it. But, like, even going through that, so if, if we want to just take it as, and we could probably leave Call Me By Your Name out, even though I really love that movie. Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Tread. I think you have options there that, like, cinephiles would have felt oh, well, that's much more deserving of it. We can get behind Phantom Tread winning. And Dunkirk, Get Out, if they had won, you've got a wider audience, like big box office hits, movies that actually landed with, with big audiences 
and they would say, yeah, okay, Get Out is representative of this year in movies. And I, I think probably Shape of Water, it just, it really kind of, it became an easy target because of that, which is a weird thing that happens when you win an Oscar. But that's the case. And I think a part of that too is people like Del Toro and they like how much he loves Hollywood. And he's a great champion of movies and of kind of, the romantic and kind of traditional ideas of cinema. So there's a lot that goes into that. And when I watch this movie, I do see the shape of water in terms of how it looks like there are some obvious story choices that lead to the style being different, but there is that there in this film too. And that is not a bad thing to me. Um, What I admire about the film most of all, and we are going to talk a little bit about the 1947 version too, Del Toro's film is like pitch, pitch black dark. Like that's another thing with this not making a whole lot of money. What are the kind of quick fire reactions coming out of screenings from Nightmare Alley from like just, I don't know, someone who maybe their Spider-Man screening was sold out and they're like, I guess we're going to this. And like it's a bit of a downer of a movie. Like it doesn't bother me. That's not really how I view movies, but it's certainly dark and um, has very little kind of sense of optimism or faith in humanity. <laughs> I I think it's it's part of my read on it. Like I think it, it has a lot of that, which is just kind of true to noir and runs through a lot of noir. But I I really think del toro in his own version has kind of dialed this up to 11 and that is fascinating this is a film i know he first had his eye on making as his second feature film was after chronos um ron perlman recommended the movie to him they couldn't find the movie because as del toro described it again i heard this on the mark maron episode that i just finished this thing before this um, because it was the 90s, you couldn't just be like, oh, great, let me go and watch Nightmare Alley. You had to track it down. And before you could track the movie down, he actually tracked the novel down. He read that and they tried to get anyone kind of willing to make it. Um, Ron Perlman wanted to be Stan. And that was the, the version of the film they tried to get made at that time in the 90s was with Ron Perlman in the lead role. He's has to settle for more of a supporting figure um, today. It's a film, though, that's kind of been rattling around a long time there. Uh, I think some of the niceness that is in Del Toro's other films, they, all, they have hard edges often, but there's, there's some niceness there to be found in spots. And I don't know. Is there any niceness here? Like the, the things early in the movie that maybe there are some relationships that are representative of that, and I think that erodes away as the film goes on. Like it is really kind of acidic oh yeah absolutely it's i mean it's some it's mostly not mostly but it's kind of beat for beat very very true to the original story but there are some little differences that are added like like you mentioned the opening flashback scene we get and that i think and that the ending is uh on a much less hopeful note than we'll, the original we'll, yeah, there's a reason like there's a very clear obvious reason for that. we'll get to that we'll talk with the other film shortly 
And um, but the I think those little changes actually work and are part of the reason I like the this version a little more. And especially seeing it being my uh, most recent Del Toro with Shape of Water. This film is just dark from start to finish for me. Like like you said, there it's all hard edges, and I think especially giving that character a backstory and showing us who Stan is at its core and what he's capable of. I mean, it's I think it it really works, and the, the darkness is kind of what draws you in. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I. I wasn't quite prepared for it. I just expected it not to be quite as as pitch black as it was. And as a result, I responded very well to that. It was a really pleasant surprise. It was like, oh, you really took the swing with this. Like that makes it all the more impressive. And it probably leaves like Disney all the more baffled at what to do with this in the first place, which leads to it. It's not a coincidence, I think, in that regard, that this also happened to like The Last Duel, which is essentially a film telling a rape from three different perspectives like and disney would be like what what do we do with this and there's there's some of that here too where it's just it's it's really really dark and um i guess it could be depressing subject matter where if unless you're kind of that's your speed and you know you like noir that's going to be a barrier to entry now i mean beyond that though one of the things that I just would have thought would have brought people in more naturally and having seen the film, like I cannot speak highly enough of, is the cast. I don't know if if you had presented me with this screenplay like three years ago or something, and you'd be like, take your pick and find an actor that you want to cast in that lead role. I do not think Bradley Cooper would have been anywhere near the top of my list. I, I do believe that Leonardo DiCaprio was actually the first choice and was originally attached to the role, dropped out. I guess that's easier to see, but it's closer to some stuff that Leo's done before. Shutter Island, for example, there would be probably some territory to this movie where you could see some overlap and maybe get why he doesn't do it. But Bradley Cooper is great. <laughs> like, he really is. Uh, I say this to you having rewatched watched Licorice Pizza today. And just to put on the record, because I had, I did say at the start of that episode, I was like, I really wish I'd seen this again. I w- wish I had multiple watches uh, behind me before we did that pod. Now, having had that, I, I don't think I appreciated Bradley Cooper enough in Licorice Pizza. He is incredible. And that might get this movie some more love as like Oscar season comes around. Um because one way or another he's going to be kind of front and center of the conversation and maybe it brings a second wave of interest to this film but he deals with the the depths of the darkness and that kind of balance of it really well i mean it's not like he hasn't done some dark stuff recently jackson bain and star is born of course um but that's kind of it like even in some of his David O. Russell stuff, like, yeah, there's dark, dark edges to those characters, or I guess the, they don't necessarily have happy endings, those stories, but it's a different kind of performance. It's a different kind of role. It's not this. And I don't know if I knew he had this particular range before this movie. Yeah, I thought American Sniper was just a barrel of laughs. Um, 
Uh, just kidding. Uh, so as far as um, like three film or three performance runs in Cooper's career goes. Uh, now I'm gonna I'm gonna play with the timeline a little bit. A Star Is Born, skip the Mule, skip Endgame, Liquor's Pizza, and Nightmare Alley are as good as Aloha, Burnt, and Joy are bad. Um, <laughs> I, I am a big Bradley Cooper guy. You know this. You know, Star Is Born is one of my faves, and you know that was really his first foray in the kind of, or not his first foray, but you know he was doing a little a little accent work there. And he was given given some kind of some southern twang, and now it might be kind of like an Oklahoma draw that he's going for in Nightmare Alley. And early on, I was like, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. And by the end, I was all in. You could have retitled this. Is that are we at that territory yet? Bradley Cooper, who is from, from Philadelphia, I, I think. Phil, yes, from Philly, and he is now honorary southerner. You could have retitled this movie. Yeah, so Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Never been. I'm sure, it's lovely. Um, this movie could have been retitled Bradley Cooper Smoking and uh, Charming People in a Southern Accent. And, it, you know, they didn't go with that because it didn't test well. But that's that's uh, a lot of the scenes. But, yeah, I thought it might not be my favorite Bradley performance of the year because of what you were just talking about. But I think he does a great job carrying this movie in the way it needs to be carried by the Stanton Carlisle character because you need to be charmed by him but then at the same time you you need to not trust him and I think um you know Tyson Tyrone Power who I had not had much of a relationship before with before today um do you remind you of anyone like he 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 was a pretty big star for a certain kind of movie but I, I personally think he has a pretty striking resemblance to a a major movie star of the last 20, 30 years. Um is it I don't I don't know. Hit me with it. Uh George Clooney. I, I think oh, yeah. particularly there's, in that movie, I think there's there's real Clooney vibes off. It's that's a good point. It's it's funny you say that because as I clicked on his um Wikipedia picture right here, I was thinking David Straightheron. Uh, who is who is in Nightmare Alley? Um, so there's a little bit of that going on, and I think Clooney directed Straight Heron and Good Night and Good Luck. So there's a lot of synergy going on with figuring out who Tyrone Power looks like. Um, yeah, but Cooper just really engrosses himself in this role, and I think you know I'm sure this has been written somewhere, but I only read the bad reviews, so I didn't see these. But like in uh, Del Toro, Toro's previous movies, you know there's there's always a monster at play. And I think this existing story allows him to create a monster within a human being and take you on the descent as they start to lose their humanity. And I think um, Cooper's kind of movie star looks and just all encompassing powerful persona and just presence that he has on screen works really well to take someone that looks so unbreakable and break them so uh, it's if if he was getting some oscar oscar consideration I, I would be fine with that especially if they got more people to see this movie i think it's it's a great performance and one of his best in his career yeah the the making of the monster kind of does become the movie in some ways in a really interesting um kind of I thought a very neat kind of narrative way 
like uh, I thought it was incredibly well handled. This screenplay is co-written by Del Toro and his now wife Kim Morgan, the film historian, writes for Criterion quite a lot. Um, and it it clearly it's two people with a very deep understanding of noir, um, but also just knew exactly how to work this story and. I haven't read the source novel, but I have done some reading about it because I was curious as to where the, I guess, where the true line is um, between the two movies as to what the, the source material gives. This is definitely more loyal to it. Um, and, you know, it's it's not the fault of the 1947 film. That was the code. You know, that was the code. For censorship reasons, they could not have made the movie they did make. In, in this case and it has like I actually I really enjoyed and we, we can move back to it maybe talk a little bit more about it towards the end I really enjoyed it I watched them essentially back to back I came from the cinema and I was like knew it was on Criterion Channel and that it was leaving um, at the end of this month so I was like you know what let's just watch it straight back and I was really enjoying it until the end which is just an all time some studio exec was like, we need to give this a, a more upbeat ending. And it's so misjudged because that that adaptation of the movie is dealing with the same darkness. It just has to do it in more kind of subtle, subtexty, under the surface ways because you can't show or say some of the things that you now can. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of an interesting divide between the two. And it, it's certainly something for anyone who, whether it was ahead of it or in retrospect, I think goes and revisits the 1947 film. I do think it's a real feather in the cap of Del Toro's movie. I'm sure there will be some people who will prefer the slightly, you know, misfitting, but more uplifting ending. Although uplifting is maybe too strong a word um, about the 1947 version. What Del Toro and Kim Morgan cook up in theirs is, much truer to the entire story. Like it, it feels more satisfying as a conclusion for this particular film. And it also provides Cooper his Oscar real moment. Uh, I, I really do love the end of this Can film. You, the, the ending is great. Like it is a great ending. It's a kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't sneak up on you, which is uh, again, it's just something like that's fine. Not everything has to be like a twist. I think there are lesser filmmakers who aren't as schooled in just, you know, classic Hollywood movies that would be like, oh, well, this is a great idea. How do we make it a twist? And this film does not do that. It kind of, it's just there in front of your eyes. You get to watch the entire, um, I was going to say progression, but transformation is probably a more accurate way of putting it, given um, Del Toro's interest in monsters and the like. But it, it just it kind of trusts the audience to be interested and invested in watching it unravel and in watching how that kind of impacts the other characters around um, Stan. To talk just about some of those other characters, some of the other performers, uh, Rooney Mara, there's never a moment in a movie where I'm like, oh no, Rooney Mara's here. I wish Rooney Mara could be in all movies. Um. I do not blame Bradley Cooper for falling in love and running away from the carnival with Rooney Mara. So whenever Rooney Mara is in a movie, I'm 
I'm pretty excited to see her. It generally means you're going to get some really, really good stuff. And that's certainly applied here. Having said that, Kate Blanchett appears for the second half of this movie as like a smoky voice, femme fatale like figure. And she kind of steals it for me. Like I, I thought she was absolutely unbelievable. That's not a it's not a revelation to say that either. Like she generally is. Um, but I, I did think this was a really, really strong performance, even by her very high standards. And she is perfectly cast and just fits in beautifully to the movie. Yeah, and outstanding chemistry with Cooper. Every scene where they're kind of developing their scheme inside her, inside her psychiatrist office, therapy mm-hmm. office, whatever, whatever her exact profession is, which is also uh, another piece of set design that's absolutely brilliant and really helps just kind of build that world that Del Toro is building. Um, yeah, she's out- outstanding, and I, you know, I was frightened by her, but I, I enjoyed uh, watching the scenes. It was a lot of confusing emotions going on within me. Um, w- one thing that I think the, the to that twenty twenty one version does better than the original version um, is building up the relationship between Stan and and Molly a little more before they go off together. In the nineteen forty seven version, it's a little abrupt so i I actually think with with ritter too i mean i think both of those relationships like this movie's two and a half hours like it's not short i personally didn't feel it i do wonder if at home when people could check their phone if they will feel it this is the kind of this is where the the upside and downside of you know go see a movie in a theater or you don't and then well will people ever respond to or people gonna watch this at home be like why did anyone like that movie? It was too long. I was watching, I was looking at my phone for most of it. I don't know, but I I felt in seeing it that it earned its runtime and it was it was doing character work that was valuable and that was certainly paid off at the end. Yeah, and even with uh Richard Jenkins character Ezra Grendel, even with that kind of uh ruse they're pulling it builds up that relationship and, and makes one of the moments before the end, the payoff there, um, I think a little more rewarding as well. Um, and, and like the, the action that leads to Stan's ultimate downfall is better for getting a few more scenes with Grendel and having them kind of unpacked what he's looking for. So yeah, I agree. The runtime where it ends up at two hours, 20 minutes. It, I mean, I, I, two and a half hours i guess actually mm-hmm. um if uh coming out of that movie i i would have told you it was two hours i think it it all flows together nicely and works well for the the overall story because there's a lot to tie together and i, I mean with the original narrative arc it's 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 a, something going full circle and we get told what's going to happen to stan through multiple conversations that he has in the beginning with other characters and i think t- to rush that along makes a few of the moments um, lose their impact. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, Richard Jenkins, I'm glad you brought him up because I was going to go there next. Just he's one of my absolute favorite actors. Every now and then he'll go up and just give a performance that blows me away. Um, he's just so versatile. He's an amazing comedic actor. 
he's really good as a straight man in a comedic setup. His performance of Burn After Reading is one I'm really, really fond of. And I, I love his whole role in that movie. Um, he's just a great, great actor. And he actually, like just thinking about the year that was in it, like The Humans, a movie I, I don't believe you've seen. A movie that a lot of people quite liked, and I, I don't think will factor into any kind of larger awardsy conversations. But I wasn't crazy about it. But I think Richard Jenkins is brilliant in The Humans, and it, here again he is great. And he was one of the best parts for me of The Shape of Water. I, I thought his performance in that film was fantastic as well. So Del Toro clearly knows how to tap into something with Jenkins that brings out the best in him. One of my favorite shots of the year is um, just a great sequence overall is the kind of the sequence introducing his character and when Stan is brought to, um, you know, strong, strong Citizen Kane vibes off that whole kind of portion of the movie and this kind of um, industrialist style character who lives in his own little world protected from the pains of his past is is certainly kind of hitting all of that right on the head but there's an amazing amazing shot of jenkins or his first reveal where i I actually i don't know if i knew he was in the movie and he starts speaking i'm like oh that's richard jenkins but to look at him you're getting not kind of soft shadows not that you're getting half his face in the light and half his face in dark but you're getting really harsh kind of black and white splits across his face. And I would be, I'd be really interested to see actually that scene in particular in black and white, but just some beautiful lighting and really great lighting choices, which it's often something that's neglected by contemporary filmmakers. Um, Del Toro is a clear exception to that. He maybe puts more care into lighting than the vast vast majority of his peers and that even goes for great directors I, I guess part of that is you know from the past of it black and white forced you into really caring about that and really kind of considering and going with real detail I also I, there's some parts this I haven't heard about yet obviously doing a black and white version of this I with the way Del Toro is I don't think he will just have shot this and being like yeah let's just make it black and white and put it out there so I would assume that on set, he was also, every decision was factoring in how this would look as a black and white movie and as a color movie. And his own color palette and the way he works with colors and the way he contrasts colors is, is always something that's very enjoyable to look at. But I, I thought particularly just that whole, that whole location, like Grindel's home and everything around that was really, really kind of, the, like the arriving at it and the kind of the driveway sense too there's a lot a lot there that is really memorable and kind of some of the things that most stick out for me and that performance which Jenkins is great any other cast members you want to shout out yeah very brief performance from uh Mary Steenburgen uh which means with her and Richard Jenkins both in this movie it's part of the Step Brothers extended universe um <laughs> She gives a particularly short but terrifying performance. Um, I, I won't give any more away there, but she's 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 great. Um, Tony Collette as Zena, uh, 
kind of steers into that kind of manic energy that she has from time to time in certain performances. Uh, I think heredit- there's some hereditary energy at some points uh, from her there. Um, Ron Perlman as Bruno after seeing the uh, original 1947 movie, I was like, oh, pretty pretty good casting. It's that, great that casting. Lines up pretty well. I, I was amused in finding out that he actually saw himself as Stan originally, which, you know, maybe he could have done that at that time in the 90s and it would have been an interesting movie. But like current Ron Perlman is one of the few actors in Hollywood you could cast it as Bruno and have it work out like perfect casting. Uh, I think, uh, as you said earlier, Willem Dafoe chewing on the scenery really works as I a carnival director. It's I, 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 as I was going through it, I am I imagined him saying, you know, I'm a bit of a carnival man myself. Uh, the entire time. Yeah, just all the way around, top-notch performances, and in seeing now after having seen the the original version, after seeing this, it's like they did a very good job, especially with the supporting characters and kind of bringing similar both looks and energy. A lot of that has to go to do with uh, you know uh, dress and and you know the way they do the hair and that sort of thing. But I, I thought it all lined up really nicely making it something completely that stands on its own, but also is, is really um, doing right by the original version. Just like David Strayhorn again, as, as Pete, yeah, uh, his husband, the drunk. I mean, he was, he was great in Nomadland last year. I thought he was tr- great here. And I mean, top notch cast, see this movie. <laughs> uh, w- one performance that I really liked and uh, an actor, I was just, I was thrilled to see in this movie. And every time I see him, I'm like, Oh, great. It's Holt McCallany. Um, Which I think most people might know Holt McCallany at this point from the David Fincher series, Mindhunter. Um, perfectly, perfectly cast in this. Again, I can't think of too many actors that would be better suited to the kind of the security guard, the kind of just, you could just have like, oh, it's a stereotypical heavy, but with Holt McCallany in that role, it becomes something much deeper, which the film actually needs it to, like the story demands that of that role. So the fact that his character, Anderson, like you believe that he cares as much about Ezra Grindel as he does, and that that's ultimately quite important for the story. I, I just think he's a great, great actor, and I I hope and feel like maybe there is a little bit of a kind of a, a surge in big name filmmakers and interesting projects being like, oh, let's get Colt McCallany for this, and that's maybe part of the Fincher effect because he's incredible in Mindhunter he might be the best thing in Mindhunter and I love that show also like at the end of the movie and you're you've got a scene and you're like wait a minute, is that Tim Blake Nelson like Tim Blake Nelson's really coming in for like the final two or three minutes and like perfectly at that point you're like well, of course Tim Blake Nelson has to be in this movie like he's he's I don't want to say born for it I don't want to but he's kind of born for the part. I agree, and you stole my line that I was going to use a little bit later. I'll have Sorry to. I'll have that. to adjust. I'll have to adjust there. But yeah, I I agree. It was. I was. I was like, oh, it's it's Delmar it, when Tim Blake Nelson popped up, and I, I was happy to see him, and it fit him so perfectly. 
Um, any any other thoughts on the the 1947, the Edmund Golding version? I mean, these are both adaptations. I should mention of William Lindsay Gresham's novel, um, which, as I alluded to earlier, is really what Del Toro is doing. Rather than remaking the film, he's adapting the novel again. That's his first kind of contact with the text, and it does show he's not just remaking the film. He's clearly kind of getting at some of the ideas and digging deeper into some of the things that interest him from the source material yeah i think i really enjoyed the 1947 version i think it's it's the lesser version probably because of some of the limitations of the time as you noted and (laughs) decisions potentially made by studio people who were like yeah let's let's change ending a little bit let's end it on a little bit of a happier note but overall i thought it was really solid i mean um really good performances i thought um in some cases and this is probably another product of the time some of the the roles for women were a little underwritten um particularly uh the molly character i wouldn't say that with the with lilith ritter i think that that didn't necessarily have the oomph that kate blanchett did but i thought it still had the uh kind of impact based on kind of where the story goes but yeah uh, yeah, it's it's a true noir so the thing with that is like even in the 40s like maybe the best roles for women were to be the femme fatale you know like that's that's where they were seen as completely central instrumental to the story often more than just kind of a romantic interest um really kind of loaded with their own motivations and desires in a sense of like Molly is is like the literal the girlfriend character that to this day still when someone like that appears in the movie it will be noted and it will be criticized of like that character is just there to be the girlfriend they have no real agency or no real purpose of their own I thought Colleen Gray gives a really good performance I, like I, I she's doing all she can with that I, I think it works um, within the film but yeah it's it's a movie I really enjoyed watching, but as I said earlier, it is, it's hard. I Maybe I did consider watching this before I saw Del Toro's. And I wonder if I had actually done that, what way I would feel about it. But the ending, I, I think still would have kind of ripped me up the wrong way because it's, it's, it's hard to swallow. It's just, it feels disingenuous because it is. And it, it certainly wouldn't have been um, the original intent of that film. But yes, that was... Between studio interference and censorship, that is common for movies at that time. That oh, we need a, a studio happy, happy ending to bring this story to some sort of conclusion, which is just incredible because with this particular story and how it's played out, I don't know how you could be like, oh, let's find a way that we can, you know, soften the blow of this ending. And it, it one thing it did make me think of and appreciate, and it's just when you see something like this, you then think of a lot of the older films that just managed to avoid this completely are filmmakers that just had the power to just be like, yeah, I don't care. Um, like Hitchcock being one of the most notable examples of someone who could always just be like, yeah, I'm going to end this on like the darkest and grimmest note of all. And that's just going to be it. And throughout his career, um, like even I guess before his Hollywood days, but early Hollywood right through to the the fifties and even in the 60s. Hitchcock would just be like, yeah, I'm going to end this on the grimmest note possible. And he had the power to do that. But 
the flip side of that is if you're Edmund Golding in 1947, the studio are kind of diving in to, to put their own spin on Nightmare Alley. I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where this or if this film factors in to discussions we have in the month or six weeks from now when we talk about our favorites of the year. I'll go as far as to say, I think it's going to be like in my top 20 of the year. And I wasn't necessarily expecting that going into it, even. I just, it, it really pleasantly surprised me. Well, two, so it's not your fault because you had your own personal top end and bottom end of the crit- critical consensus wrapped up into one person in me sliding into your diet dms giving you takes so it's not your fault that you you didn't know what to expect going in sorry to edmund golding for criticizing his film after he has been dead since 1959 (laughs) so apologies to him um yeah i kind of hope it gets factored into some award conversation even though i don't know that it will um i wonder if it's something that gotta get people gotta get some crafts uh production design um hair and makeup costume like uh, i think it's better than some other like period stuff this year that could get those kind of nominations like uh, i would think it it should factor into those categories like in other years maybe del toro in a weak year del toro could get director attention for this even with the film being a bomb this is not a weak year though like there's there's not going to be enough best director nominations to go around like someone like pta could miss out like so, I, I I think that's not going to happen. But I, they might find an acting, an acting nomination somewhere. I don't I don't know. It, you never know. Also, like, it's tougher than ever to gauge what the academy is, um, as they continue to just grow and grow and grow. Like, just add thousands more people, and it's more diverse because of that. But it's also, who knows what it is? More representative of society is that a good thing? society you know representing itself very well i don't know um like i I don't know what way you could possibly fix any kind of voting body it wasn't good before when it was just a group of all white people it's not necessarily going to be better though for just being a large large body where then you get things filtered through a much less kind of specific eye and i maybe even a less discerning eye maybe more discerning we're at the point where it's like, oh, Parasite, what a what a beautiful thing that was. What a great decision. I'm waiting for like really sharp, like something that uh, I, I'm not, I don't want to tempt fate because we know the way that could go, but something that I really find to be terrible to just come in and to be like, oh no, they're actually worse than ever. The Academy is worse than ever. But to the point, Maybe this lands with some people. Maybe it lands with some of the more traditional voters um, as this reimagining of a film that they could well remember or just something like, like Martin Scorsese wrote an article on this, the LA Times, which is actually really good, um, praising it as like just a really true distillation of noir, not neo-noir, not a pastiche, like a lot of these movies tend to be and a lot of movies of this ilk over the past kind of 20, 30 years in particular, when it comes around, it's, it's, it's never trying to actually make the real, the real thing as much as trying to engage with it. This is like a real noir. Maybe there's, maybe there's some support there that will completely shock people. Would that be good for movies? If all of a sudden a film that no one went to see 
starts to rack up Oscar nominations, though I don't think it will get there, but there could be some acting. Someone, someone like Kate Blanchett, I mean, she gets nominated all the time. It wouldn't shock me if people are like, she's good, let's vote for her. She does get nominated all the time, Adam. That's an interesting point you bring up. She's been in multiple movies this year. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just the kidding. Apologies. Uh, Imagine yeah, if get... she got a Best Supporting Actress nomination for Don't Look Up rather than Nightmare Alley. Our podcast um, would cease to exist um, because Adam would go live on the top of a mountain where no one can no, bother just, him with all uh, we, of his favorite Blu-rays. And we'd never we'd never talk with the Oscars again. And I'm, I'm reaching that point anyway. But it's like it, it always, it continues to matter. Like it dictates when these films come out. And it dictates when like I got Nightmare Alley late because it only comes out late in the US because of the Oscar deadline. And it's like, it, it's a very typical thing that would always have happened for Searchlight movies. So it does force... If you're into movies, it still force you into this, in spite of the fact that you're like, this is the body that gave Green Book Best Picture like a few years ago. My projection for Nightmare Alley is it's something that people on movie Twitter in five years are like, hey, you know what was actually like a really good movie? Nightmare Alley. That's kind of what I'm viewing for it. It's already started. That kind of, yeah, you know what's that's kind of underrated. I've already seen that kind of discourse around it. Um, yeah, I, I just, it'll be interesting, like, beyond his Pinocchio thing, also, what the Toro does next, because I, I feel like he's exploring his ideas in a way that are not speaking to, like, the hardcore cinephile base that he possibly should have. And yet, like, everything that he's preoccupied with is always too dark and too weird for larger audiences. And that's kind of part of the disconnect where it's like, he's not making something for either of the groups that you could make movies for. Like, obviously there's lots of subsections and subdivisions within that, but ultimately, particularly if you're like a, a name filmmaker, you're making films for the masses to be big hits or you're making films for like, critics and kind of cine literate audiences to be like what a spectacular film that is and del toro is not just fitting neatly into a box where his movies are going to kind of satisfy either side of that which is interesting as a tough place to be like when i start to think of that it's like well then there's probably something wrong with the system if that's the kind of boxes that it feels like but it does feel like that's how it works you know he's got the Pinocchio Hive covered. Me and all my Pinocchio fan friends uh, on on Facebook were excited. You're going to so, go yeah. as like Geppetto on opening night? Uh, I was going to be Jiminy Cricket is right. who I was going to be. He's I'm, not actually I'm only... called Jiminy Cricket. He's called his his middle initial in this because the, the teaser is just Ewan McGregor um, who plays Jiminy Cricket, but he introduces himself as something beginning with C, something J Cricket, which we all know what the J stands for. Um, I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find Sebastian J Cricket is the name of Hugh McGregor's character. 
I I like you and McGregor as Sebastian J. Cricket a lot more than I like Chris Pratt as Mario, so I'm all in. <laughs> I can't I can't argue with that. Um, it's gonna be weird. Like stop motion and Del Toro seems like something that is kind of a match made in heaven. If you you think of some of the kind of bold stylistic choices that people can make uh, in that particular form definitely seems like something that'll be well suited to him i look forward to that andrew i also look forward to uh talking about you know the teenage boy who shoots webs out of his arms next week and we will finally have our spider-man episode and you'll uh, you just you know i'll put my feet up and you will more broadly be talking about your experience of you know the mcu and I don't know if you like it, if you dislike it. I'm just, I'm interested to see. You have a little bit of a remove too, that when you see Spider-Man, because yeah, you haven't done that yet, but you're going to. Uh, how do you feel about it? And then, as I mentioned earlier, for people who really do like these movies that are concerned about the direction that me and Andrew Thomas could take, I'm drafting in someone who is much more of an expert, much more of a fan. And we should have some fun and a nice balance out of that. Yeah, I've got my tickets. I believe it's uh, Sunday at 12.25 p.m. Eastern time in Chapel Just Hill, North Carolina. If you want to come late. by and say, don't hey. Don't be five minutes late. I, listen, I'm, this is this is a multiplex. It's one of the, the big places with the recliners. They bring so me popcorn right to like my seat. So you're banking on 20 minutes of trailers. Well, I'm not banking on it. I'm going to get there. be there early. Yeah. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get my seat, I'm gonna situate my popcorn bucket, I'm gonna get my Coke Zero, and I'm just gonna lock in for, for Spider-Man. If you want to hear that episode and all future episodes of Capture the Celluloid, go follow us or we get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Capture and Cell. And we will be back to all very soon. Thanks as always to all of you for listening. Thank you, Adam. I was made for it, Adam.